Hello and welcome to Leviathan 13th. And I have to ask the question, what the hell is going on in Normieville? I don't really know. Who knows, man? I, I, I think you ever might, it? I, I don't know. I, I think we might have to call for an immediate 90-day shutdown of Normieville until we understand what the hell is going on. Man, the news this week has just been incredible, even by Normie standards. So, like, yeah, first we had the IRS, which comes out and announces against the FTX estate of $24 billion in unpaid taxes. This claim would, like, supersede all victims' claims and pretty much wipe out all equity in the now defunct company. So the lawyers for the bankruptcy case uh, came out and said, like, this is an Alice in Wonderland argument. It has no support within the law. There was you know, to support IRS's meritless claims that the debtors owe tax in an amount that is orders of magnitude greater than any income the debtors ever earned, and it would effectively prevent most of the FTX creditors from ever attaining any recovery. Just kind of crazy sauce there. I, I, we had heard about this a while back, but got more confirmation this week. It's really just like the cherry on top of a giant for the FTX creditors or the victims. Uh, hopefully they get some money back. Second... We had uh, Elizabeth Warren maniacally coming out and pushing the Overton window towards authoritarian surveillance state status uh, by this new bill that she puts out, which essentially is going to slap on new KYC, BSA, AML uh, requirements on single participant in the crypto ecosystem. And Liz says that it's, it's necessary to crack down on crypto's use in enabling terrorist groups, rogue nations, drug lords, ransomware gangs, and fraudsters to launder billions of dollars of stolen funds, evade sanctions, fund illegal weapons programs, and profit from devastating cyber attacks. Essentially, the new bill would make it illegal to not include these BSA KYC regs for what she calls unhosted wallets. Uh, which is just like any open source wallet that you could download and fire off a Bitcoin transaction or ETH transaction form. Additionally, miners as well too, uh, and validators would all be caught up in this. And she says that this is an attempt to loopholes uh, uh, and and bring the digital asset ecosystem in greater compliance. So I understand that this bill has little chance to get out of the Senate, but it is a shot across the bow uh, for people who run their own full nodes. A nine-year-old kid who is building his first Bitcoin. Straight to jail. Just tear its finance there. Just go to jail. Maybe the Fed yeah. should kick down his door. Uh, and lastly, which is the reason that I, I, I reached out to our guest today, uh, we had the S&P come out with a stablecoin ratings, uh, which is a whole mess of terms and confusions. And, uh, just it's kind of all over the place, right? And so I reached out to Austin Campbell resident expert and probably someone much more level-headed than me today uh, to come on the podcast here and uh, to, to talk about this. So Austin, what the hell is going on in Normieville? <laughs> well, yeah, so I would say now is one of those times where it's helpful to zoom out from the world of crypto and start with what are these entities doing in the normal world before zooming in on crypto? One of the problems we have in this space is when we see people doing things we find odious, we assume they have a particular animus against crypto. And in reality, sometimes I'm like, no, they're just like that all the time <laughs> when we're talking to people. So like one of the things that consistently happens with the IRS, and if you're a US taxpayer who's ever sold a house, 
or had restricted stock or something of that sort, um, you may have experienced this behavior is they'll play this game where they act like they don't know what the cost basis of any of your assets are and go demand taxes from you as though it was zero. So like I have a friend who sold a house in Chicago where the IRS came to him and was like, you owe us 280 grand in taxes from this sale. And he's like, how is that even possible? And the answer when he said to the IRS, how is this possible, is they sent him a schedule showing the cost basis for the house was zero because they had just never recorded it. And it's like, I didn't fucking get a house for free. I bought this from somewhere, right? And so my point is the FTX thing, which I largely agree with the characterization of the uh, lawyers for the estate is, you know, unfounded is probably more of that. I mean, this is probably the IRS being like, hey, we don't have the tax basis on any of these trades, so we assume it was zero, so you owe us a huge amount of taxes, right? Because if you just look at like face value of all traded assets and assume they got them all for free, they probably do owe $24 billion in taxes. The reality is they didn't get them for free. And so here, I would say this seems like the normal IRS tactics of just trying to make it a problem for the other side and seeing what they can collect. Uh, I, I jokingly say to some extent, the process is the punishment with these things, which is to say they're just trying to shake the tree and see what they can get. Now, I don't think that should be allowed. I think that's very poor conduct by a federal agency, but to act like it's unique to crypto with regard to the IRS is definitely not true, right? So starting there. Two, We'll get into it much later, but I, I would say the S&P thing, look, it's confused. They could have done some parts better, but they also did some parts decently well, and you've got to start somewhere with the framework. So like, I don't want to be too harsh on them. I think they could have done a much better job, but I also get their starting from zero. So, you know, very middle yeah. ground on that. And then three, you know, to circle back to your point on Elizabeth Warren, to some extent, I think Elizabeth Warren attempts to move the Overton window in her favor with some of these proposals, but sometimes that kind of like, you know, rebounds in a way she doesn't expect, which is to say it moves the Overton window further away from what she was attempting to do. So I think the irony of Warren's proposal is it's probably increased the appetite for people to pass some kind of bill clarifying some things around digital assets and KYC AML. And by the way, there are some constructive things there that need to be done, but also kind of exposed what Elizabeth Warren is asking for is like extremely totalitarian. And so I'm not sure the Overton window has moved in her favor because there's some intelligent people running around DC right now thinking about this from the context of, well, what if we were to expand this just beyond blockchain? What are some of the sort of implications. So like, Sam, let me go back to the intro that you were talking about and ask, if we took blockchain out of the bill and just applied this thing to call it any electronic representation of a dollar, what sort of things would need to be swept in, right, in the current framing in Elizabeth Warren's, like, anybody who provides infrastructure that helps facilitate a transaction has to KYC people. And then it becomes pretty easy to understand, like, oh, this is like crazy. Yeah, and I, I think we talked about this last time we were discussing the uh, the regs master tether and essentially trying to, to like weaponize the the U.S. system to or the, the OFAC system to essentially go after. Uh, Is it me or did we just lose Sam? Okay. 
Okay, lost you there for a second. I'll ask you. Yeah, so we we talked about this last time uh, that you were here about how uh, it it essentially is kind of crazy that they would go after people outside the United States for non-US based transactions. And this is essentially like what those rules would entail as well too, is that here we have software developers who are essentially publishing uh, free and open source code. And uh, that code uh, would then be, I don't know, subject to these strict regulations on in, in, in adding you know, mass surveillance <laughs> activities to it. I, I don't know, it, it just seems all a little bit I mean, maybe it's just everything this week, really. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from. And certainly this proposal is a negative. But I think what's helpful about it is it was so far into the negative that it has acted, you know, to expose some of these concerns. Because, again, if you just zoom out from crypto and say, hey, anybody who publishes code that facilitates transactions in any way, shape or form allow, you know, with electronic dollars and it's that broad, you need literally your web browser to KYC you before you get on the internet. You know, I mean, when I uh, think about it, it even uh, goes beyond that, I think, because uh, just like Sam said, they, uh, they're not just trying to go uh, after uh, like people uh, within the industry that are in the US. They want worldwide uh, like uh, power over that thing. So at least from my uh, very uh, like humble perspective on things, it basically, it basically just seems that, uh, you know, they want to make sure they, uh, they, they maintain all the power that they currently have on the system. And uh, maybe they wrap it with some uh, nice words uh, around it and like uh, good causes as they claim. But to me, it always seems uh, like uh, it, it seems very much uh, like disingenuous and like they're not doing it out of good causes. Like I, I'm not seeing uh, Elizabeth Warren as a positive actor within the space, no matter what they tell me. I, no, 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 but I, 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 I want to I want to see some of the advisors that like, you know, the thing that gets me DeFi advisor is not the um, back and forth. Right. Because we're always going to see different political uh, outcomes that people want to have with these things. It's just the the lack of dynamism when it comes to uh, creating and providing uh, like clear rules and regulations within the space. You know, we're yeah, going on more than, you know, no, but I, I understand. But like if, if we look to other jurisdictions like Europe, which is another major player, uh, Singapore, places in Asia as well, too, you know, they've taken this decade of of history that we have with crypto now and they've they've come out with very clear uh, guidelines during that time period. And, and here we are in the United States, the, the largest capital market in the world uh, with the most amount of innovators and, and potentially, I mean, we should have the most amount of dynamism in the world. And uh, we're hamstringing an industry uh, based on uh, just people's inability to work things through the, the legislature. Uh, you know, we, we have had continued uh, proclamations from both parties that they want to get a stable coin bill through that they want to get a crypto bill through uh, that they want to you know have a clear path for companies to operate within the law uh, but here we are at the end of 2023 with with the legislative session about to close and there's nothing on the table and potentially there will be nothing on the table until the next administration comes in in 2024 so i just look at it as a, a lack of uh inability to act on our our legislative branch 
Uh, and I understand these problems are are wide ranging, but there there are some clear uh, rules which which should be dealt with at the legislative level and not be kicking the can out to where you know the the bureaucrats get to have their field day uh, and and make our lives just even more complicated because the the obtuseness and opaqueness of the the current laws that they have. And so I, I think that's where my disappointment comes in in this whole situation. Yeah, I think that disappointment, quite frankly, generalizes to a lot of TradFi regulation, too, if you've really ever lived in that space, right? Like, we, we could do significantly better. I would say, for me, part of what I think the problem is, is not just the not passing of legislation. I, you know, I think there are ethically and, like, logically sound arguments for not acting on legislation and letting things develop and seeing where it goes, because... The only thing worse than no legislation is really bad legislation that then takes a decade plus to undo. Like one or two places that went real early on this are probably regretting some of the things they did significantly. But on the other hand, you shouldn't be weaponizing your federal agencies as though things are clear in the interim while you have not done those things, right? And obviously the SEC is the biggest offender there. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at a political process in any country that's got many, many, many representatives, you know, between the House and the Senate, we've got over 600 like chefs in the kitchen on this stuff, so to speak. You're going to have an Elizabeth Warren somewhere. And to the previous point, yeah, I don't think Elizabeth Warren is a good actor in crypto. Like, let me be very clear about that, right? Like, she's not. But some of the people who are co-sponsors to that bill, I don't think really understand what Warren is asking them to do. And they are good actors. And it's those marginal people where I think the efforts really need to be focused is on people who genuinely don't want things like North Korea funding a nuclear weapons program, but also don't want a surveillance state and don't really understand that what is being asked for in this bill is not, you know, to the previous point, just a preservation of the current levels of power, but actually a massive power grab. This is a significant expansion over the powers that they currently have in traditional markets, right? Like we do not have the ability to tell somebody, hey, if you might be facilitating a transaction in dollars anywhere in the world using infrastructure, you have to KYC and report that information to the US, but that's what this bill purports to do. And so, you know, I, I do think it's important to view the process through that lens. Part of what it really demonstrates though is how you know, Sam, as you were saying, broken the U.S. legislative situation is right now. Like, we could barely agree with each other that two plus two equals four by passing crypto <laughs> legislation. Uh, I, I just, I just think that, like, you know, there was, there was no, there was excuses back in 2017 when the whole when we went over into significant market cap size, but uh, there's been five years now, and I don't really see when uh, you know we've gotten like some. Uh, some things passed, like the the IRS bill that that came a couple of years ago. Uh, but other than that, like the there's still very unclear rules into the future about what it means to to run and publish open source software uh, software, uh, and you know what the what it means for the participants in the entire stack of like who's at risk and who's not at risk. And so these these kind of basic questions of participation and uh, ability to you know publish and, and use software at the end of the day are are really maddening for me uh, and so like I look at the the Warren bill as just a um, 
you know, we, we all know that she publishes a lot of bills, but they never get passed. But as an as an insider within the, the government, that's not what she's trying to do. Right. It's more just about rallying support and and kind of setting the tone of what should come in the future. And if this is if this is really what the party, uh, unfortunately, is moving towards, uh, like I, it worries me a lot that this is kind of the the, the hardliner opposition line. Yeah, I would say a thing to understand about Warren in the Senate is she's very non-collaborative with people, right? Which is to say most of her policy is made by talking to some of her favorite academics and then just shooting proposals out. Not really much collaboration with the rest. She's also, you know, people forget Warren's pretty old at this point. And I would say what we're finding within the Democrats and like, you know, Richie Torres was on Laura Shin's podcast talking about this at one point is a real split happening between the young and the old Democrats. Right. Like when I go to the Hill and I talk to staffers or I talk to like representatives, I would tell you almost always the number one dividing line between pro crypto, anti crypto is age. Many of the younger members are in favor. Many of the older members are against. But these are people for whom keep in mind, even email was a genuine innovation. Right. Yeah. Like, so understanding their technical frame of reference, they have, to be blunt, just been left completely behind. Right. It's like, not only am I not familiar with electric vehicles, I started with horses and don't even understand automobiles that well. And so there's this cumulative decay of knowledge problem that we have with some of these people. And so the old timers in the Senate driving this doesn't shock me. It does make me somewhat optimistic, though, that it's not going to go very far as a result of that. And then. Yeah. You know, Sam, on the open source point, being real here, I, you know, I know this is going to make me, you know, an enemy to both sides by saying this. I think both like the Warrenites and the call it control maxis, but also the DeFi maxis have been disingenuous about what it means to publish open source code. And what I mean by that is if you're just publishing it, you're definitely allowed to do that. But when you're operating it with an economic interest in the outcomes, that's a very different thing than just publishing it. And it goes back to one of what I think are the legitimate criticisms of some of the regulators of this space, which is like decentralization theater. Yeah. Like if something is actually decentralized, say like Bitcoin, great, cool. But the reality, if it's like five dudes with a multi-sig and upgradable smart contracts being like, oh, free speech, and they're collecting all this money on the back end, like... <laughs> <laughs> Well, like speaking of that, uh, the S&P came out with their stablecoin ratings uh, yesterday. And I, I know you had a, a very long thread about it, uh, which we'll get to in a second. But one of the things that I thought was funny from the S&P ratings was that uh, when they were talking about MakerDAO, uh, the, the headline for them was governance in, in name only. And so that like, you know, like Rune and his buddies have significant power and we've seen some of the the decisions that they've made come through have been kind of one-sided uh, over these past months. And sure, I, I think that there's definite claims there. It's really hard to build like open systems, especially like DAOs, right? Like what exactly is the DAO? Is it, is it actually decentralized? Like, are they just unincorporated partnerships? Uh, are these people just engaging in some sort of like regulatory arbitrage? I mean, like probably yes and no on, on all these counts, right? It's a very fine line. Uh, and I don't, think that there's a like a clear answer for it but um before we get into the thread i do want to say that the the there was a really great comment to your thread uh which i think is something that when we talk about these these stable coin ratings that people miss a lot is that 
there's really two types of, of dollars in this crypto ecosystem. There's like dollars, which are debt representations of a uh, either cash or some sort of securitized short-term debt instrument in a, in a uh, custody somewhere. Uh, and then there's other digital representations of the dollar that don't have the same uh, backing or same sort of functions. And this would essentially like split out the USDCs and Paxos dollars and PayPal dollars away from DAI and Frax and all the other like crypto dollars that we have. And the term stablecoin is not analogous to everything that we have in the crypto space. And so people get really confused. And so when these stablecoin ratings come out, they're trying to really like put apples and oranges together because the the custodian relationship and the uh, asset relationship that like Dai and Frax is going to have with with their assets is totally different than like a Paxos or a USDC uh, or even like a Tether, and uh, it's a very hard needle to to thread. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I've jokingly said previously we should really take stable coins and underneath it define like two separate categories one is digital dollars and two is all the other stuff right and like those two categories should be well understood to be different things i agree with you that like look looking at this through a trad five perspective and having dealt with many many cash instruments and seeing what survived the crisis and what didn't probably three quarters of what we call a stable coin is not like a digital dollar representation it's some form of derivative mm -hmm. or securitization and it's got a lot more risk than people think Right. On the other hand, if you want to talk about digital dollar representations, we actually have pretty good frameworks for those and know what works. And I think, you know, if I'm looking at S&P, getting to the substance of the thread, I kind of have two lines of critique for them. One is, I think you've misunderstood the problem a little bit, which is to say they've spent a lot of time building a framework to address, I'm going to call the crypto-ish aspects of these things without starting with what I think is the most important part of a stable coin in great enough emphasis, which is, is it stable, right? So like <laughs> asset stability and durability when bad things happen should be your number one and two criteria for how you rate these things, right? This is like rating a government money market fund. The holders don't have much upside, they're very risk averse, and they're primarily trying to avoid downside. So the entirety of your rating criteria should basically be based on, hey, when stuff gets bad, how likely is this to survive across all states of the world, not just the current state of the world? And then two, Sam, I do agree with you. They should have had a little more differentiation between the various like types of these things. You'll notice, like if you read my thread closely, I basically said stuff that does not fit within the definition of what we would consider like stable digital dollar products within TradFi should probably have a cap on the rating within S&P's framework of like, no matter how well you design DAI, or like let's take something that probably is more durable than DAI in current design and say like LUSD, it still should not be anywhere near the rating of something like a properly designed PYUSD. Yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to see that the, the primary difference when determining like how I should view stable coins is really the uh, at par on demand claims. So if if I'm looking at a crypto dollar, like you were saying, like USDC, USDP, the, the primary concern is like, am I going to be able to redeem this token or whatever sort of claim I have, uh, am I going to be able to return, uh, redeem that at par? 
And if the answer is always yes, then we have a good crypto dollar variant. Uh, but when it comes to like die and frax and like other things, I'm not worrying about can I redeem this exactly at like a dollar with a thousand decimals outwards, right? Like it, I'm, I'm not worried about that. I just want to be able to use it within the system and have it uh, be able to be exchanged with good liquidity at or near par, but it doesn't have to be par all the time. And I think that's the trade-off that we make. And uh, it's something that when these stablecoin agencies come, uh, it's the primary thing that they're looking at. It's like, like is, is it always going to be at par on demand? And if it's not, then we give it a lower value. Yeah, and so I think that's one part of it. I think, so I, I do think that's a good observation. You're essentially saying which one of these function like currency and which one of these function essentially like an investment product in some form. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would also say is, you know, and this was a critique I had of the rating agencies about their ratings of structured products from 2004 to 2008. So like this long predates my involvement in crypto is when you're rating things at the very high end of the scale that you're going to say are stable, you should probably start with the framework of, okay, assume things have gone wrong. Now, how stable is this thing going to be, right? Because if I told you, hey, in the current world, how likely is it that DAI holds its peg? You're gonna be like, ah, you know, pretty decent. But if I were to say to you, assume we're having 2008 again, how likely is it that DAI holds its peg? Now your answer doesn't look nearly as good. Whereas if you look at something like PYUSD, which is again, really only in T-bills, you know, or overnight reverse repo secured by such, the only thing that's going to break that is a literal default of the U.S. Treasury. And yeah, that will definitely break it. But for your U.S. dollar coin to be systemic to the U.S. dollar, there's a certain amount of intellectual consistency there, right? That whereas you're taking on many more risks with something like even a, you know, prime fund, much less something like DAI or FRAX. Yeah. And I think like, you know, there's been some really important papers that I've read over the period. Like this is one of them. It's by Gordon and Jang. It's called Protecting the Sovereign's Money, or Money Monopoly. And it essentially gets into this point. Um, and I think they also talked this about this in Taming Wildcat Stablecoins, is that like the, the fact that we have these crypto dollars, which don't always, or which, which aren't always redeemable at par in demand, uh, makes them like worse money, but in it's it. I don't really agree with that. They're just they're just private forms of money, which have their own redemption features, I, and and it's really what, only the. I was going to say one of one of the funniest parts of this paper. I was at the New York Fed and discussing this with somebody at one of their research conferences, and I'm like, if I just took stablecoin out, replace this with bank deposits, what changes about this paper? <laughs> Yeah, it, I, it's it's just a, a general distaste and and dislike for private money uh, at the whole. Uh, and, and and if you're look, if you're a sovereign money maxi, right, which is to say, only should be issued by the government. It should all be paper bills. Banks should not be able to engage in fractional reserving or money creation, right? Like literally, if they want to lend a dollar, they should have to take a bill into the vault and hand that exact same bill to somebody else with serial numbers that I would tell you this entire paper makes total sense to me. I actually, and like, quite frankly, many of the critiques of stablecoins make sense to me in that framework of if you really say like M0 should be it to get like economics nerdy, then cool, I totally get you. But the thing that confuses me is people who go and rail against stablecoins for like the peg stability problems or like, oh, these are private money creation, but just gave a complete pass to like Signature, Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank. It's like, guys, this is the exact same problem.
right? Like you don't get to say, it's cool to create private money if you use a private ledger, but not if you use a decentralized ledger. Like, whoa, that's the problem. Like that doesn't make sense. And that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying when I'm saying that these these people like are disingenuous. When we actually try to look at what they're doing, uh, and uh, like as if they're trying to do good, we we can't see the the actual uh, problem, in my opinion, because we're trying to make uh, sense of something which is not done in order to make sense. It, it is done in order to make sure who's in charge, who's the powerful, and I think that. Uh, this is an elephant in the room that uh, we can't really avoid because uh, they are not—they uh, are not actually in our favor. Otherwise, stuff just like uh, Austin just mentioned, how is that even possible? They—they so, interpret—they interpret stuff the way that fits them, not the way they think it fits us. But well, look, I don't—I 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 don't like look. I—I I re I read a lot of these, and I don't. A lot of the things that they raise, as points against like stable coins and uh the way that we've had the system set up are totally right and and completely valid right like we've we've had blow-ups we've had issues with uh like usdc and the silvergate thing whether that was like a product of uh you know the fdic shutdown or something else like it's 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 all up in the air right but i think the the, the primary issue at hand is that there are certain things that we probably should implement for stable coins, right? Like all of their claims and criticisms are not totally unvalid. Um, you know, the like Gordon and Jang and also Will Marth as well too have done like a lot of research into you know why private banks have blown up and like why we have the FDIC system and like the effects that uh, that something like we can see it with 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 Luna and UST when a stable coin that has billions of dollars goes bust overnight. There's a lot of people that get hurt and there's a lot of victims in that situation. So we should have a resilient system that is able to to navigate any sort of uh, 2008 like crisis or even 2020 with the, the blow up of Luna. Um, you know, these systems have been built in a way which are the product of a, like thousands of years of history and, 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 you know, previous banks and other private types of money like blowing up. But at the same time, uh, like destroying innovation at the the cost of safety uh, it's it's similar to the the ai arguments that we're having right now like are you an accelerationist or are you a safetyist like it, it's it's the same it's the same sense just in the the idea of money where you know should we have these firm barriers that protect people from ever having any sort of risk to currency or money or should we allow like innovation and people to kind of work in these regulatory gray areas to build products that people might want to use, but there might be some risk involved with it. And it's a fine line to balance. Yeah, I mean, to look, to some extent, I kind of reject that dichotomy too. I think a lot hmm. of the improvements of blockchain can be safety improving, right? And that's where I really do think, you know, a lot of the problem is lack of understanding. To some extent, it's an Occam's razor thing. Like, are they really trying to grasp for power? Or do they actually just not know what they're talking about because they don't get the system? I think it's more of the second that people like to believe. It's more fun to believe there's a grand conspiracy rather than these people are technological idiots. But it may be the case that just people don't understand the technology. You know, I, I've been in more than one discussion where, you know, with economists, with policy people, with, you know, legislators, where they're describing stable coins to me as like, 
quote unquote, evil or destructive. And I explained to them, like, guys, this is a government money market fund. Like, do you think Vanguard's government money market fund, like we can pull it up right now, the ticker is VUSXX, right? Like, is that thing going to destroy financial markets? And if the answer is no, why would taking that thing and changing the backend technology from their current private ledger to a distributed ledger suddenly make it a machine of death, right? Like what is going on here? And it forces them to start driving into, you know, I guess the way I would describe it is, what is your actual understanding of these things? And what you're going to find when you get there with many of these people is they've been fed a lot of false information about what's actually going on, right? Like I testified on stablecoins and in that hearing, Maxine Waters, who was the ranking member for the Democrats, is like, well, why is there no transparency about stablecoins? Everything I've been told is these things are all dark money. And I'm sitting there like, yo, I used to run a stablecoin like four months ago where we published every single thing we owed down to the penny at the end of every month, just like a money market fund. Like that's just a lie. Right. And by the way, sitting directly to my side is Adrian Harris, who's the superintendent of the DFS, who's been regulating that stuff that way <laughs> since 2018. And it's like, this is an information problem. And by the way, that means her staffers are not getting good information to brief her. And that mm -hmm. means the people feeding them information are the problem. So I also want to say, don't take that as a direct criticism of Maxine or her staff because they're doing 500 things. She's the ranking Democrat. Yeah. And this just means the information network under them is broken. But I think we all can say that like the NYDFS system has worked and worked really well. And they've been probably the best stablecoin regulator in the entire world uh, up until this point. So like, how does that information disconnect happen where you have a very well-experienced regulator that has been running a very tight ship uh, for half decade now, and is just not able to translate that in any way through the, the political channels into the, the parties that be. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest and say, here is where I think the information network is the problem. So the NYDFS is a state regulator. Richie Torres was in that same hearing. He knew everything about the DFS. He is the New York representative. You know, Waters is from California, and I guarantee the main people whispering in her ear are like Treasury and the OCC, who are just trying to ban the whole space and are complete technophobes. So they're telling her these things don't exist. And then because her staff is underpaid, overworked, and has 500 things to do, they don't have the ability to go call every single state on this one niche issue and be like, hey, is this true? Hey, is this true? Hey, is this true? Hey, is this true? Like over and over. And so to some extent, what you're experiencing here is as modern economies and modern nations have gotten more complex, one of the problems we have in the United States is that people in the House of Representatives and the Senate have one to two staffers who are dramatically underpaid trying to understand all of this. Like in, in a core way, one of the biggest upgrades we could make is just upgrading our own infrastructure. Like, look, we're in crypto, so let me draw an analogy for you. Everybody here is familiar with the arguments that like, oh, Bitcoin is archaic, it's ossified, like all these people are fighting about ordinals being good or bad, but like these are all things that other blockchains are doing at much larger scales already and Bitcoin is kind of in the stone age comparatively. Now, the house system is way, way, way older and more ossified than Bitcoin and how these staffers work. So imagine the Bitcoin problem, but like 50 to 100 years from now, is what's going on with their information gathering. 
like I, I say this and everybody hates it because they hate politicians, but like the best thing we could do is give every single congressperson like a million dollar budget to hire staff as soon as they're elected and just pay them so that they have good people who know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, that I think that's a great idea. Also raising the the uh, salaries for politicians to the point where, you know, people that might want to go into tech would not make that decision and, and come into politics. Uh, not not just their regulators. So I'm going to give a stat that's shocking to people. So you could go and look at the salaries of people at the CFTC and the SEC, including their most senior staff, like everybody. When I was a year one associate at JP Morgan, I made more than anybody at the CFTC or SEC makes. First year associate, which is super junior, to be clear. Right. And so the fact that we're so far off the ball, right? Like, yes, I'm okay with people taking a little bit of a discount to be public servants, but that discount should not be 80 to 90%. But you know, I, I again, I see this kind of stuff uh, because I agree. People should be earning, uh, like, if we want to attract talent, talent should be paid. But I think the whole way we're looking at it is wrong. I think that. And of course, I'm not saying it's all of them in, in absolutely no way. I'm not even thinking it's most of them. But you have to consider the fact that if some people are taking less money on the table, maybe something is going on behind stage. Because if people are willing to go and do all kinds of stuff that under that, that on the surface, it seems like everything is good and okay, who knows what's going on uh, backstage? And I, I, I think it's very naive to think that this kind of stuff doesn't happen at all, and it's not an issue because, in my opinion, it's a much bigger issue than uh, we hope to uh, than we hope it is. No, I I agree with that. But the easiest way to combat that is one: pay them way more, right? Because yeah. the scale of a bribe that it will take to get you to do something if you make a million dollars a year versus ten thousand dollars a year is probably pretty significantly different. And then two. Once you're paying these people like significant competitive wages, then make it a very serious crime and have independent investigative authorities to take care of that conduct, right? So like maybe a good example of this globally, if you want to look at models zooming outside of the United States is Singapore. Most of their bureaucrats are benchmarked to the private industry, but boy, you're also not going to like what happens to you in Singapore if you ever take a bribe. <laughs> I Yeah, yes. We're not going to talk about caning today. Uh, or getting your head shot. I don't know if they... I, I, they, they would give people the death penalty for bribery. Yeah, yeah that would not yeah. shock me. And probably a lot less as well, too. Uh, you know. Well, uh, b before this becomes a... Uh, bringing it back home and refocusing on our own politicians... Back, back to stable coins. <laughs> yeah, back, back to stable coins. Uh, because I know that if uh, Rex is listening to this, he's going to want to hop in. <laughs> we'll get some comments. Um, if Rex was listening, we would already get these comments. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, so like these these stablecoin ratings. Uh, thankfully, I looked. Paxos got a very high rating, got a two. I don't think anybody got a one uh, in the ratings. Paxos did get a two, which is strong, and that reflects what they call USDP's highly liquid, low risk reserves, and uh, also said that uh, you know they're. Uh, it's been under the supervision of the NYDFS, and uh, that it just seems pretty positive in their uh, understanding of, of Paxos. Uh, Tether didn't come out very well, obviously, since it's quite opaque and nobody really knows what's happening there. Uh, they got a, an assessment of four. Uh, so 
I guess they got some things right. At least USDP's rated higher I, than Tether here. I mean, I would say my only real like, again, this is why I said like, I, I know I like had some critiques of it, but I don't think it's a terrible first effort. I think their, you know, results are largely directionally correct. The big divide for me that I think they missed would be between USDC and the NYDFS crowd, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is I agree with the assessment that right now USDC looks about as good other than one key dimension that we'll get to as the NYDFS crowd. But it goes back to that comment I made about you don't evaluate things when times are good, you evaluate them when things are breaking. And because USDC does not have a prudential regulator that oversees what's going on with the reserves and does not have legally binding guidelines around all of these things, if Jeremy wakes up feeling crazy one morning and wants to roll the entire portfolio into commercial paper, there's nothing stopping them from doing that, right? If you are USDC, they operate on money transmitter licenses across 50 states. They can just do it right now. On the other hand, if you're Paxos and I were to go to try to do that when I was running the reserves there, the NYDFS would be breathing down my neck the next day. We'd probably be like paying fines, losing our licenses. Somebody might go to jail, right? So this is a very different world to live in when there's an external force constraining you versus just cross your fingers and hope it works. The other part is the bankruptcy remoteness. I know the people at Circle will swear up and down they think their reserves are bankruptcy remote, but being real, I have not seen any external legal opinion. I have not seen any experts in the space. And certainly I don't know of anything they're doing structuring that makes me hold that belief. And that's not to say they couldn't get there, but as it currently looks to me, it's just corporate reserves on a balance sheet. And yeah, it's a pretty simple entity. They're not like doing levered lending or something, but still I have serious doubts that it's bankruptcy remote. And obviously you don't care about circles peg stability when things are good you care about them when they are going bankrupt and so right. <laughs> or you know, or silicon valley bank is is collapsing right like, right because a giant yes. loss of the reserve will cause the bankruptcy and so to me this uh, is where s p is really underspecified this and again it goes back to my critique of structured products in general like the 04 to 08 crowd were rated and like, oh, we use these models. Things look good right now. It's all AAA. It's like, no, you need to rate these things under serious stress and what will still survive when everything is breaking. And so that's like my critique is the divide between the stuff that exists in external regulatory frameworks. And by the way, like yeah. I've talked about New York, but there are others of those globally. If you're in Bermuda's framework, if you're in Singapore's framework with the you know MPLs, if you're doing a JFSA regulated stablecoin, if you're in Wyoming or Nebraska under their legislation, like these things work properly, right? Like Caitlin Long at Custodia has been going on about this for a long time too and makes many of the same points. And so when you look at those ratings and those frameworks, to me, like the, the big critique I have is, guys, you've missed the key point, which is how does it break? What does it look like when things go wrong? And there's not enough granularity there and that will lead people to some bad outcomes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at the S&P and they also gave USDC a two rating, which is the same as Paxos. But if we look at a, a, a blue chip, which I, I like the blue chip guys, they're like crypto people that came from the industry, understand it really well and and made their rating, made their rating agency. I still think that there's a few issues with blue chip, but I think they're at a much better understanding of the entire space and how all the the nuts and bolts are connected here. I, and I would, if we, mm -hmm. I, I would uh, point out that the exact critiques that I have in here, the blue chip people have gotten right. You have it up on exactly screen. right. 
So blue chip says that like USDC can go from B plus to A minus by establishing that USDC's reserves are bankruptcy remote and then incorporating transparent and reasonable timelines for redemption in terms of service, similar to the conditions imposed by NYDFS and stablecoin issuers under its authority. So I think you're exactly right. And it's, it's unfortunate that like the S&P uh, doesn't see that. Um, because the, I, I like the blue chip guys. I think they have really nice ratings. Um, some of them are a little bit questionable, like, like the liquidity, but they, again, they, they're focused on just the ability to, to get your funds back. Uh, the collateral, getting the collateral back is the most important thing for them. Yeah. I mean, so if you, it, this goes back to the earlier question, Sam, that you were asking, which is if you think a stable coin is a thing always supposed to hold a $1 peg period, full stop, liquidity being an A is crazy. On the other hand, if you think the goal is that they well represent what they are trying to be stable to and will always be liquid to that thing, that is to say liquidity is like a, call it overlay on ETH and ultimately you want to be able to get ETH back regardless of the price, then yeah, I think it works properly. And so, you know, that to me is, again, we probably need to improve the nomenclature here and say we have like digital currency which should work like fiat and always be redeemable into exactly one fiat. And then like all the other structured products and put them in two separate silos because, you know, just being real, what USDP is or what BUSD is or what USDC is from a financial perspective is very different than LUSD or, you know, as we go down the stack, like die. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I would also say like back to the sort of, you know, S and P framework, I would definitely be penalizing things that are trying to be half like pig, half fish type entities. So like to me, DAI has become a major offender there where you're simultaneously trying to be quote unquote decentralized while at the same time having a bunch of like private credit agreements for real world assets. It's like, guys, pick a lane. Because when you try to do both, you're strapping a rocket engine to a school bus and bad things are eventually going to happen. Right. And they've had a couple of defaults over at DAI this year, small, but uh, still defaults that... Well, okay, so that's a thing. But here's what I'm way more worried about with DAI and a risk that I think the market has grotesquely underpriced um, to, you know, sort of reveal my own bias. When you've got real world assets, you need to play by real world rules. That is to say, if some regulatory authority decides that DAI has a nexus to criminal activity and tells DAI, we need you to seize those coins, and they've either done this weird sub thing where they just won't respond at all, or they say, well, we can't do that because we don't have the functionality and we're not going to respond to your thing. Those people aren't just going to be like, oh, okay, I guess you win. They're going to go seize your real world assets, right? They're going to go to Coinbase in Ireland and be like, hey, this private credit agreement you have with DAI, we're taking that, right? Like that's how that's going to work. And so, you know, it's, it's if you want to be decentralized, actually do it. And if you don't live in the real world, but you have to pick one. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you there. Can we, um, I just wanted to touch on one last thing before we wrap up. And um, this is some like Paxos PYUSD conspiracy theories um, where I, I'm just, I'm just going to say like, if, if we're setting up a betting market, uh, what's the over under that USDP is going to exist as a, as a brand within five years? I mean, well, as a starting point, I might, I might take the under on everything in the stablecoin space existing <laughs> as a brand within five years, other than maybe PYUSD, because um, I, I do think, 
like this is a very nascent market. Like we have not seen any of the big players actually show up here yet. So, you know, I, I, I think my, my point, my point that I was getting at is that with the, with the emergence of PYUSD, uh, like USDP is a, a brand, it's stable coin. Um, doesn't really need to be marketed or, or pushed anymore. Right now they have a giant corporate company who's doing all the work for them and they can just roll all those or push their USDP users into the awaiting hands of PYUSD uh, who they can facilitate within the PayPal ecosystem. And so for Paxos, it would make much more sense to like consolidate under one brand, which would be PYUSD. I don't know if maybe, maybe you can talk about this a little bit. Is PYUSD going to be their primary, uh, operator do they plan to have like other branded stable coins I, like what's the future here i mean so on the first note i will say when busd existed and was pretty big they didn't deprecate usdp i think they probably keep it out there purely because like why deprecate it if people are using it it's probably just going to sit around like it doesn't have huge distribution but you know it, it certainly serves as a pretty good model for the product and like branding thing for paxos right mm -hmm. it, purely as a branding exercise it might be worth it Two, on the white-labeled stablecoins thing, which is what Paxos calls that business model, I would tell you, I think that's more a decision that will be controlled by corporate issuers than will be controlled by Paxos, right? Because if you're looking at a white-labeled stablecoin, it takes two to tango. So if Paxos, I'm just going to pick some random names. I, I, I want to be very clear. I am not <laughs> saying any discussions have happened between these two companies. In fact, I'm pretty sure they haven't. But if Paxos and Alibaba were to look at a branded stablecoin, then not only does Paxos need to be interested in doing it with Alibaba, Alibaba needs to be interested in doing it with Paxos. And to some extent, as regulatory regimes spin up and the rules are clear and things like become easier to do globally, I think the value of Paxos being there, being like we have the licenses, we have the expertise probably goes down as it gets easier. It probably goes up if it gets harder. And so what we're really asking is what's the forwards on regulation globally? Yeah, everything on this podcast is for educational purposes only uh, in case of any sort of uh, investigation. Uh, wasn't this alpha? Wasn't this alpha? <laughs> uh... in, in, in any case of any investigation by the feds, uh, we, we don't yeah, know anything about people? this. About this uh, China, China, USA stablecoin link. Uh, <laughs> that this is why I picked it. This is why I picked an example that would be patently ridiculous. But <laughs> just to be clear, uh, so I was thinking, I, I'm, maybe, can I yeah, something? Ahead, uh, can yeah, you maybe explain, you touched it earlier as well. Can you maybe explain how different the situation with uh, PYSD is rather to uh, like a lot of the other uh, stablecoins? Because earlier when you said something, it seemed like you uh, you really see the, the opportunity that PayPal has with pay, PYUSD uh, now and how it's structured to really be uh, much different than uh, maybe some of the other and older actors that uh, we know of. So maybe you can uh, share uh, some thoughts on that. Yeah, that has to do with like, Quite frankly, what is PayPal? I would tell you with stablecoins, the hard part for the most part is not the technology. That's pretty easy. Like you could just go copy, copy like Circle's contract and use it. It's not that hard. The hard part is getting all of the real world integrations right because you're stapling a 24-7 always on system to like the legacy banking system and you have to manage that mismatch. And then two, having distribution to people, which really matters as well. And so the reason I see PayPal is different is one, they are a giant web two platform with a truckload of users doing payments at a scale that is unheard of 
for any other stablecoin issuer. And two, in their particular case, the use cases they're looking at are not just call it more crypto for crypto. They're really actually well situated to do the real world transfers, merchant payments, remittances, because, you know, one thing I think crypto has consistently gotten wrong is thinking, oh, we can build from crypto into the real world because crypto is the hard part. No, it's the other way around. Like the real world side of a money transmitter business is way harder than building something on a blockchain. So somebody who already has that side building into the crypto space, I think is much more likely to succeed in the long run. Very cool. And we have one last question from the audience. Uh, Naga King asks, can, uh, can I ask you about <laughs> your history with Refuse and if you're trying to implement the Refuse Pride program? I must say that uh, Refuse is like one of my favorite bands ever. I think that they uh, are seminal in the in the like metal rock like what, whatever you call it space and uh I'm, I'm really excited to hear this answer yeah so i i would say it's going to be more boring than people would hope for which is that my musical tastes are completely fucking inexplicable and it drives my wife crazy um because she'll be listening to stuff that's coming on on like my random mix while i'm working and just being like listen dude did you just go from like Beethoven to an obscure rapper to Swedish punk rock to lo-fi to tool to like they might be giants like what is wrong with you as a human being <laughs> and so I would tell you yeah I've listened to refused off and on for a long time I've also been a long-term fan of like science fiction so when they showed up in cyberpunk 2077 I was a huge fan of that as well mm. right I think that's gotten some nice recognition for their work that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten and so for me, no. And by the way, keep your eyes open. In a lot of my stuff, there are maybe like Easter eggs and references to various things. I have a reporter who used to be at Bloomberg who came to me at one point and was like, am I fucking crazy? Or did you drop a Warhammer 40,000 reference in an interview with the Wall Street <laughs> Journal? And I'm like, no, you were correct. And so, <laughs> you know, there's Easter eggs in there with my stuff. Uh, I'm I'm going to lead out then. We'll lead out with some, uh, some Tannhauser. This will be your like, you know, there's like WWE entrances where they use a place for a while and you get to come out. Uh, we'll just lead out with this. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, it's great to see you all. And uh, we'll see you again on another episode of Leviathan News. It's awesome so good, man. Here today, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow. It's, uh, what? <laughs> it's